he never wanted to give the impression that he needed help or that things hadn't been simple and obvious and easy. Like he always wanted to give off a veneer of uh, comfort with himself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Maria Bastios, who is the founding editor of Popula, an alternative news and culture magazine. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Harper's, and The Guardian. And I want to talk to her because of her incredible work about Anthony Bourdain. She just met him once and did a profile about him based on a very, very close reading of all 13 of his books. And especially in the fiction, she was able to identify him in a way that he described that it was the most illuminating profile ever done about him. And it was very disturbing for him to feel so seen. And I think that's particularly interesting with somebody like him, where I think his legacy, at least for me, reminds me of this adage that from the passions, we have to trace the wounds. And with Bourdain, we don't like to do that. We, we don't like to look at the suicide and say, you know, we, a lot of people, when you watch the documentary Roadrunner, or even in the New Oral History by Laurie Woolover, they'll say, we need to separate the suicide. This is not something to be part of the whole. Well, yeah, it is part of the whole, because it was there all the way along. If you look at the work, if you look at the interviews, if you look at the people who knew him, if you look at his family, it was always there. Somebody who aspired to be a drug addict, as he said. Somebody who was delighted the first time they did heroin. Um, somebody who talks about burning down their first marriage almost immediately after really finding big success. Um, somebody who cultivated this image of a kind of happy-go-lucky needle in a haystack. I don't know how I got here. But when you parse the facts, when you parse the people close to him, um, this is where he wanted to be. He just didn't really want you to see that. And I, I noticed that a lot when I listen to programs interviewing journalists or politicians. You're not allowed to want what you're going after. And it's really hard to get these things that they're going after without desperately wanting it, almost from birth. It's really, really hard to get there. And so uh, I wanted to talk to Maria about how she found him the way she did, because it's remarkable. So I really encourage you to read her work about Bourdain and, and the rest of her work. She's a fascinating lady, really bright, really incisive. And um, I think I went a little hard because I have kind of a dark take on Bourdain, but I don't know. That's where I was that day. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Maria, this week's guest on Tourist Information. Well, I just want to start off, I, I mean, I just read your most recent article um, reviewing Lori Woolever's fantastic oral history. And um, you're like the most interesting detective that I've read about Tony. Oh, well, you know, it was kind of an accident because um, my editor at Eater, Matt Buchanan, whom I've worked with for many years, like at the all... Um, and elsewhere, like, I mean, forever, I've worked with him and, and at the New Yorker. And he asked me to read all of Bourdain's books. And 
he goes, he's written all these books. You should just read them. I want to know about that. And I'm like, okay. But I had no idea. There were like 14. <laughs> there were really a lot. I yeah. mean, he wrote a, a whole little book about Typhoid Mary. He wrote like, you know, three detective novels, like you know, like crime novels. He wrote like cookbooks. And I mean, I sat and read all this stuff. And so I, I, I gained an understanding of him that I think is uh, uh, mm, different from kind of what you would learn from just watching him on TV. Can you speak to that? Because I thought what you revealed, I mean, we're only seeing more and more and more of what you seem to scratch the surface of. And for people who haven't read your work about Tony, his response to your, I think, 2017 um, article at at the Eater was, please let Maria know that I thought her piece was the most insightful, careful, and thorough thing ever written about me, and that however uncomfortable it made me, I'm flattered by her attention to detail. What, what did you get onto that so many people have not anywhere near resonated with Tony in that way before? Well, I mean, this is the thing. It's not any, it's, it's not that I was particularly insightful, you know, it's that I read all his work, right? And so, I mean, I mean, I really, I, I fell off my chair. I mean, both of us were just, you know, me and Matt were like, oh my God, he wrote to us, that's really bizarre. But anyway, yeah, and I wound up meeting him once and spending an afternoon getting like roaring drunk, you know, in New York with him. And I mean, we, you know, it's so super sad because this was the year of his death. And I really thought I'm really going to enjoy being friends with this man. He's like this really nice man. I like him, you know, he's a good writer. And anyway, it, uh, the, the reason this happened was that he was a lot more vulnerable in his early work. Like he hadn't learned how to be, you know, kind of a slick commercial product. He hadn't learned how to, uh, handled media. He hadn't, you know, he wasn't this big TV star and uh, he really revealed the kind of person he was and how he felt about his family and how he felt about his, you know, sort of early drug use and how he felt about his first wife. And I mean, these were things that you sort of had to intuit and I kind of guessed, you know, when I, when I wrote about this stuff for Eater, but um, I guess I, I guess, right. Because, you know, like I'm saying, he just had not been a very guarded um, writer at first. Like he didn't become uh, very skilled at being a media figure for many, many years. And so like the early work is very revealing. Well, you, you described the portrait of himself as an, a quote, intensely melancholic man with very deep, very old private regrets. And mm. I found it very interesting, this sort of deification of Tony as a searcher, and it has on Twitter that he's an enthusiast, but it, it tends to obscure the darkness. And like, mm -hmm. even in the documentary, I noticed a number of people breaking down in tears saying, don't let this last act overshadow who he was and all the light that he presented as if the two are somehow mutually exclusive. Yeah, I think that's a big mistake. He was, 
I'm, I, as I pointed out in my most recent piece, people forget, you know, that he was 43 and had been through like a pretty serious uh, bout with heroin addiction and a very bad breakup of his first marriage. It was a 30 year marriage, you know, and he just kind of will glance at something that is obviously insanely painful. Like he'll just say like, you know, I had burned down my previous life. I didn't have anything left, but some Southeast Asian bric-a-brac, you know, and it's like, he doesn't talk about his first wife at all, you know? And so this was an amazing thing that Laurie was able to do was really to, to get his first wife, Nancy Bourdain, to really open up and talk about what life had been like for them when they were young. But like, you know, this, that didn't really, it, it, she appears in the, in the documentary Roadrunner, but like not in a way as to reveal how much pain there must have been in this thing, you know, between the two of them, you know, they had been pretty wild together and then he became really famous and she wasn't really down with that seemingly and didn't want to have anything to do with the, the big um, public world that he had become part of. And I mean, you can sort of look at him and think like, wow, this incredible success, a person who was able to travel for a living and see all the most beautiful places and joke around and be so witty and charming and, and just like delightful and affable with people and all these things, you know, he had like really perfect manners and stuff, but like, what was his actual life? Like once the camera was off, you know, right. this isn't like something people wrote about a whole lot, I think. And until, uh, uh, until I did, I guess. Well, Tommy, in Tommy Vitale's book, he mentions that when he went to a memorial, that he noticed that it was in, almost entirely comprised of people who were either in front of or behind the camera or famous, including mm -hmm. himself. He realizes at the end that Tony didn't seem to be close to anybody other than like the professional was the personal for him in a way that he found immensely disturbing as a realization. Yeah, I I think, I mean, to some extent, I think that's a fair, a fair characterization. But like his his second wife did not fall into that category, mm -hmm. and and his daughter, you know, he did have people whom he was really close to. Like his, he traveled for like you know more than two hundred days of every year, as as many as two hundred and fifty days. Like you know, most of the time, this man is on the road and doing work. And like, you know, when I did meet him and was able to talk to him, I said like, you know, you don't stop, you know, you don't stop. Like, he's like, I, I don't, I used to worry about this and think that I should, you know, sort of retire to Italy and just with a stack of books and be in a hammock. But I just realized I can't do that. I've made my peace with it, you know? And I don't know that he ever really did. I think like some part of him wanted to be really happy, you know, in some Tuscan, countryside with a pile of books about the Kennedy assassination. I mean, <laughs> he was really like into US history. And I mean, I don't know. It's like, I guess I'm sure Vitelli obviously knew him so much better than I did, but that I had a sense that he had, he had other lives. Like maybe a lot of people, um, a lot of, a lot of the people whom he was friends with uh, were involved in his work, but 
people like Helen Cho, you know, or Wooliver, you know, they weren't just work friends. They were people who were involved in his day to day who cared about him really super deeply and had some insight into what kind of person he was and were trying to help him. Well, you, you say about Wolliver's book, and I, I really agree with this, that it's the most splintered, fractal, and complex portrait of the star that has emerged, an enormous compendium of individu individual observations gathered from 91 people who knew him. And you also identify, and, and this is where my instincts go as well, is that what Bourdain wanted you to know seems a lot less important, especially after the suicide, than what he tried to hide or, or not discuss or was much more oblique about, which I found incredibly revelatory in terms of his mother's inclusion in that oral history and his brother unburdened by his mother being alive and speaking yeah. with a kind of candor that definitely muddies the origin myth of Bourdain, like the always struggling to pay his Amex bill and never being able to pay the rent. And oh, when his dad dies, there's a trust fund that drops a quarter of a million dollars on his head in 1987. Never heard him mention that before. Well, in the book, Christopher Bourdain talks about how his parents like took that legacy and kind of squandered it and they remodeled their house, but they weren't able to finish remodeling it. Like, there was like a sense of striving, I guess, in the the family that was um, there. There wasn't enough money to keep up with their uh, with uh, I think their goal, their ambition. You know, like and and uh, Christopher Bourdain says in Wooliver's book that they the money ran out at some stage, and so, but I mean. I don't know specifics about this. I'm only intuiting from what I've read, but Gladys Bourdain had been an editor at the New York Times and, you know, she help, helped Anthony Bourdain. Like, you know, there were moments when he was struggling and he was on drugs and he's working as a chef and he's spending every available dollar, I guess, extra on like trying to cop drugs every day. And, you know, there's a scene in one of the early crime novels where it, he, you know, pretty obvious avatar for himself goes out to lunch with his mother, who's this really elegant lady, you know, who speaks really good French and they go and they have this French meal and then she writes him a check. And I never asked him about this directly, but like given that other things in the book uh, I know were real scenes from his life, like scenes from between himself and his dad and, you know, on the beach together, um, I kind of think that that was a real scene. Like she kind of supported him during these really rough times. And um, I think probably financially as well. And that was not something he could ever talk about. And Christopher Wardane talks in uh, Lori Wolliver's book about how they were, they argued a lot and there was a fractious relationship and there were long silences where they didn't speak for months or years. And, you know, and she, like came after her son for money. Like, you know, you can afford this. I want to, you know, I want to remodel my house or whatever. And right. very crazy, like um, kind of friction between the two of them that he never, ever, ever, ever discussed in public. 
Well, and, and also complicated as much as she's asking him for favors and, and she's bad with money. Um, Christopher refers to her as a grammarian who adored a job where she'd endlessly be correcting people. And also, I think more than implied that the parents' marriage was something that both Chris and Tony largely looked at her as a very destructive force in, in terms of their father being an easygoing person, quite gentle, um, whereas the mother was a striver. And the mother also, which he leaves out a lot, um, this, you, you talk about the origin story and, and how much he allowed luck to be a sort of defining characteristic in his success. But the real ingredient was his mother. His mother had connections to David Remnick to get um, to, 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 to David Remnick's wife so that David Remnick personally would read what became Kitchen Confidential in The New Yorker. His mom helped him get into CIA. I think he was assisted to get into Vassar as well through connections. He's reviewed in The New York Times very early on, which one has to think his mother helped facilitate. Um, this is a very privileged background that he certainly doesn't lead with in the origin story, like far more privileged than most people trying to break into publishing. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that's fair? I mean, I think it's a mixed bag, right? It's not like he came from great wealth. Like this was not a wealthy family. This was a family that had some connections. This is a lady who asked her friend at work for a favor. Will you read my son's manuscript? I mean, you know, there's every there's every chance that they could have said no. There's every chance that Remnick, I mean, this is the more likely thing that happens in New York, right? Like somebody has a connection and they would get a young writer's manuscript in front of a powerful person. Okay, that's a favor, but what ordinarily happens is a rejection. 99,000 times, you know, out of 99,001, it's like, that's nice, you know, like we're not interested. And so, it's not like, you know, we're not talking about this lady was like super powerful. Like she was, I don't know, she wasn't Ruth Reichel or something who could make something happen. I, I just mean more the omission is telling because to then say I was found in a slush pile, just like you, how relatable is that versus my mom is good friends with David Remnick's wife who directly got it into his hands presumably the next day, is a very different kind of story than- I guess so. I mean, we don't know, right? Very good friends or just somebody I work with that I had to like, you know, come to her with my heart in my throat and ask, you know? I mean, it's not easy. Like, well, I don't Remnick, know. Remnick, I, Remnick characterized it as an adorable transaction. That was his word. To have a yeah, mom hand it to him. He, he is- a very, very diplomatic, charming man with perfect manners and would never have described it any other way. So mm. I, I feel like these things are complicated. I don't think you could just say it's this or that way. I mean, I don't know is what I'm saying. Maybe, yeah, what you're saying is exactly right. I just, I have no way of knowing. The, the thing that we know is he didn't talk about her in public. That's for sure. Right. And, and we know from his brother that there was friction and that is to me like super interesting and sad and you know I know now they're both gone it's just like in a year that you know these these last few years that there's just been so much grief and loss it's like and there's so much that we're never going to learn I don't know I just hesitate to make like 
sort of a blanket judgment about something like that that is likely to have been extremely complex. I agree with you about the complexity. I guess I'm just intrigued by, it reminded me a little bit of sort of Kurt Cobain, that Kurt Cobain's mm -hmm. reticence was such an integral ingredient in why people mm -hmm. identified with him. I don't want to be on MTV. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be successful. That's the last thing I want. And behind mm -hmm. the scenes, we know he was endlessly calling his record label to MTV to get on to MTV, to be played as much as possible. And right. you yourself make the distinction with Bourdain. You talk about how he would prefer the headline be that luck and gratitude for luck, but that he was a real striver from early on. He was incredibly dedicated to what he was mm -hmm. doing, 13 books. And um, I, I, I'm intrigued just by, you know, like one of his heroes, George Orwell, was somebody who was notorious at the BBC for trying to hide his Eton education and his accent. He was very uncomfortable yeah. with his background. And I wonder, like Chris mentioned several times in the book, how we're not rich. And Tony mentioned that as well. Uh, $250,000 falling in your lap in 1987 is going to buy you an extremely luxurious apartment in the city at that time. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And yeah it's never I mean, up. yeah it, well i mean the, the just we're talking about these complexities right like i can easily imagine you know like yeah that's a ton and it'll buy you a great apartment and then what you know like christopher talks about you know plans for remodeling that they couldn't afford to complete i mean i don't know i like i knew families like this growing up Oh, he and I are of an age who's only a few years older than I am. Wow. And like, I had, uh, we knew families who were very grand looking, you know, on the outside. And then later, like you find out like there's, you know, mortgage to the hilt and they're going to go bankrupt. And, you know, because they've been, you know, buying more real estate than they can afford or whatever, borrowing more money than they can pay back. Like, it, it's like, so what do you say about somebody like that? You know, are they rich? Well, yes and no. Right. And th that's kind of the picture that that Christopher at least paints in the Wooliver book, I think. Yeah, I, so, I mean, it just, it, it just reminded me of, it, it is complex, but I, it reminded me a little bit of certain New Yorkers I've met who will say, yeah, I have an apartment on Central Park West and a place in the Hamptons, but compared to who lives in the penthouse in my building, I'm poor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, <laughs> you almost have an well, hour for $10 million. <laughs> I know. It's, oh, money is funny that way. Right. Like, it's the thing is, if you have that uh, macabre quote from Dickens, right? Like, if you have, if you owe like one pound more than you have, you're poor, you know? Right. But if you, if you have one pound more than you owe, then you're fine. I remember I'm paraphrasing badly, but it's, uh, you know, I think th this never changes that sort of anxiety, you know, people have status anxiety, and then they have like, um, an anxiety to appear at ease, you never, nobody wants to admit that they're struggling, everything should look easy. I mean, and I that I think is a thing that you can really see in Bourdain, he always you know, and it, it, part of it's just out of politeness or good manners. Like, you know, like I say again, like he, he's, his manners were really, really, really immaculate, like in person and, and on TV and as a writer and every other way. He never wanted 
to give the impression that he needed help or that things hadn't been simple and obvious and easy. Like he always wanted to give off a veneer of uh, comfort with himself. Yeah, and you, you, you talk about, I love the way you put it, that somebody who's so renowned for their level of candor, you said he gives a superficial impression of extreme candor, but look a little closer and you will often see moments of restraint, of filial or marital or parental respect or politesse, a gentle drawing of the curtain over private moments. And I noticed that throughout the series is after his death, going through the entire show of, of the final show that he did, um, there's no reservations, right? The last one? Parts Unknown, I'm sorry. Parts right? Unknown, yeah. I conflate them. Um, that there are little moments that are rare, but it's like professional wrestling in that it's, you're looking for truth in fantasy. And mm -hmm. those moments, you know, or like, um, that 1970s rock band where everybody was having sex with Fleetwood Mac is mm. who is the song about? Like, because the, the art is so close to the personal while they're on stage performing it and you're wondering what's going on in their heads. And there's an element of that with Bourdain where one of the world's great communicators is confessing that he has no ability to communicate with his family or people he cares about or loves, that mm -hmm. his, his great nightmare is being stuck in a hotel where, I mean, you were mentioning, I, I live about six blocks away from where he lived at Columbus Circle. That is a very strange location for Bourdain to want to live from my point of view with the impression I've received from the great adventurer and traveler and eclectic person that he is. It seems, um, I don't know, it's kind of like a frightening structure. Every time I pass it, I imagine him living there. Like why there? I think it went on the real estate market for $14,000 a month for his apartment. What did you make of him taking you back there? I mean, there's just the one little picture you shared in the article, but it, I just was curious about your impression of that. I was so drunk. <laughs> it was like, we, oh my God. <laughs> you know, we started, I mean, you know, we met, at, I don't know, it was like two or three. And I mean, it was like two, two and a half hours of this like and he was like do you want another one and what are you going to say no I'm like yeah absolutely you know I like ate a bunch of mozzarella sticks so I wouldn't just fall off my bar stool but like you know I smoked a cigarette with him I hadn't had a cigarette for years I like and another cigarette and we had another glass of wine so by the time he's like um so yeah I, I'm like I should I should let you go or whatever because it had been so long and I thought what is he doing I don't I mean I don't even know. I was thinking like, should I ask to hang around more? Should I call a photographer to come and help me? I was just so flummoxed and wasted. And we'd had this, this monumental conversation. And I was like, I am really confused right now. But anyway, we were at this bar that no longer exists called the Coliseum. And his place was like right across the street. And I'm like, so where are you going? And he's like, well, I just live right across the street. Do you want to come up? And I'm like, sure. And so we, it, it was way high, you know, it's like a hotel. I mean, it was so different from where I expected. I mean, I mean, what did I expect? I have no idea. I guess I expected him to live in the East Village in like a really nice apartment or like, you know, right? Or Chelsea, yeah. I have no idea. Like, but somewhere like, you know, some pre-war palace, I guess I expected. And 
it was like this really, really, really nice, like as if it were a hotel room, um, a really good one and very almost like sterile. And, but he obviously really dug this environment. Like he was proud of it. And, um, you know, because it was beautiful and the view was absolutely insane. I, I took a couple of pictures of him looking out the window that I think I, I published one or two with the piece and popular. Um, it was an extraordinary sort of vantage point for him. I guess most of it was really about the view. And, and he had a very sort of a, a cinematographer's eye for um, life, right? It was all about vantage points for him. He, he wasn't like going to entertain a bunch of people in this place. It was like a place where he was going to pit stop and he was going to be looking out that window. And that was the sense I got of it. Mm. Well, it's interesting you talk about cigarettes because one of the things I seized upon watching this show was the emphasis he placed on quitting smoking, which was a big part of his image, smoking all the time on camera with his previous series. And he explicitly mm -hmm. said, I quit smoking because of my daughter's birth and I wanted to be here for her. I didn't expect to live this long and I, I owe her the responsibility of being here. And I watched an episode of, of Parts Unknown and he, I think it was Southern Italy and he has a meal and he's wearing his Steve McQueen sunglasses and said, you know, it almost makes you want to have a cigarette and he smokes. And it looked like he got emotional and the net, you talk about his cinematographer eye, the next two images were of a child's hands against the sky parting and then Jesus bleeding on the cross. And I thought, this is a very strange thing to proffer your public on camera when you've mm -hmm. been so explicit about why you stopped. Mm -hmm. And when I brought that up to Tom Vitale, he said, well, Tony never stopped smoking, ever. <laughs> but he talked about that all the time. He talked about he started smoking again when he was with President Obama. But according to Vitaly, none of that was true. He never stopped. So I thought it was interesting when you brought up smoking as well. I've given up smoking now for several months, but that became a kind of narrative he was spinning, which I thought was fascinating. Well, I think it's true that he slowed down and took better care of himself for a long time when he took up Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Certainly, I mean, yeah. Maybe, maybe he like didn't, you know, because I mean, when I, when I met him, he was chain smoking. He was just really smoking. But um, I think that there was a period where when he was training, it was like very rare. And he also stopped drinking as much. When I met him, he was drinking heavily, like, I mean, extremely heavily. And I'm like, well, this is just this gigantic guy. And it's not such a deal for him to have six beers in two hours or whatever. But I mean, I don't know. I, I sort of wondered, you know, whether there was a problem. I mean, he just sort of like kind of pedaled to the metal, you know, later in his life on the vices thing. A lot of people say this who knew him. Hmm. And um, yeah, Obama too, like is known to have never really quit smoking and sneaked a few every once in a while. But I mean, not very many, right? I mean, yeah. or at least people say that. I can't say I know I haven't, I wasn't there. I didn't see him, but I've heard that um, too. Yeah. He, he likes a cigarette, but I mean, like whatever, you know, it's like, uh, 
you, I, I definitely got a sense of him as somebody who was not happy about how much he was smoking. You know that thing where it's like I'm smoking too much. Like oh, yeah. smoker, you know. It's like yeah. I've got to I've got to stop. You know. I mean, my husband and I went for years where we were having like four a day or something together, and it was like we went on like that for a really 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 long time. You kind of feel like you've got it under control, and then if some crazy thing happened and you suddenly were to have like a lot more cigarettes, then you feel terrible and you feel terrible the next day. So, I don't know. I mean. The idea of enjoying a vice in a controlled way, I think that was a feature in his life. Well, and, and you you got this great quote from him and you, you followed up on it that I just, I found this little portion astounding where I believe you were in his apartment at this point when you were conducting your interview, where he said, I know very much what won't make me happy. The perfect car will not make me happy. The perfect house will probably make me sad and terrified. And you say, please elaborate. <laughs> Why? And he says, because a house is a commitment. You have to take care of it. It's like any beautiful thing you have to maintain and protect. And then you also have to consider who gets it after you're gone. And so even books and records, which I books in particular, I have a lot of books that I really love. And he concludes by saying, who, will, who, who does one pass this on to? So there's this interesting through line with a lot of his work that it's always kind of anticipating death and legacy. Yeah. All yeah. That just completely weirded me out. I mean, he, he, does, he did have a lot of books, but it, it was kind of like, I have a lot of books. It never occurred to me in a thousand years, like, you know, and I'm his age. It's like, I, you know, when you die, people are going to split up your books. You know, this is not a, a thing to think about now. I thought, this is so weird that you're thinking about this. But I mean, I wasn't going to tell him that. I just wanted him to talk. But I, it weirded me out. I'm like, why do you, you won't care. You'll be dead. <laughs> I don't know. But it also I, know, seemed, I also read that he was, somebody described him as a suicidologist. He was really obsessed with notable figures out there who killed themselves and, and mm -hmm. deeply inventoried the details of their suicide and how it resonated with the public. It was a big deal to him. And I did not know that. I didn't either. I I didn't, I, I didn't either, um, but I mean, Hunter S. Thompson was a big hero of his, Hemingway, sure. he has his thing. Um, these were both people who kept everything they ever touched, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of concern for legacy. So yeah. um, a lot of people said he didn't leave a suicide note and I find it hard not to watch his series, the, all of them as a kind of suicide note because he's talking about suicide a lot, jokingly. A lot but a lot. It's very present in what he's yeah. doing. Yeah. He wrote about it a lot. Right. And, I mean, he wrote about it early and he wrote about it in, in a confusing way where sometimes fictionalized and embroidered. And I, you know, there's this moment where I think he actually considered it, um, you know, pretty seriously, just like driving off the edge of a cliff and it appears once in the memoir and once in the in the novel, but he kind of backdates it, you know, for the, uh, wait, no, he put it in the future. It has to have happened earlier than he said it did in the memoir because he wrote about it in the novel, like, you know, eight years before or something like that. It was very weird. It was just really 
super duper strange. But um, anyway, yeah, he thought about it a lot. Did you, when you were with him, I mean, I watched him almost by accident five years maybe before he died do the one-man show. And all I saw was the bravado. I didn't connect mm-hmm. to what was what was inside him that was a little more fragile, vulnerable, um, that would need the armor of the bravado. I just, I thought the bravado was him. And it took, I think, after his death to sort of get into this mode of, of trying to see who the real person was from this image that obviously resonated with so many millions of people. Um, but I wonder, like, meeting him, can you describe that to me? Like, how did it line up with the image that you'd formed of who he was to, to be one-on-one with him? And you mentioned explicitly you were completely uninterrupted while you were at that bar, which is fascinating. It was the weirdest afternoon of my life it, it anyway um well not forgetting that i had read all his work right so and sure. that and before that he had he had read my work he like the first he he was following me on twitter which like i that was the other thing i fell off my chair because i had written a thing about lester banks like i say you know we were of an age and he grew up reading lester banks just like i did and I had written this thing about Lester Banks in the New Yorker and he tweeted it, you know, and he followed me and praised it like to the skies. And it was like this amazing moment for me, obviously. So we had a relationship on Twitter and would exchange a line once in a great while on Twitter. And I just thought, wow, I can't even believe this man follows me. I admire his work so much and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, Matt asked me to write about his books and then I read them also. By the time I finally crossed, sitting across from this guy, you know, we had a, um, a, a, a sort of camaraderie as like writers, you know, like, you know, you know how that is, like you media colleagues, like somebody that you just know on Twitter, a Twitter friend, you know, who happens to be really freaking famous and all, but like, just like, you like each other's work or whatever. And I was very flattered and all, but like, that's just, it's just wasn't really any different from that. Like somebody whose work I know and, and who has been kind about mine. And, and so, um, and I have to do this like job and I'm going to like talk to him. So it was a sort of professional kind of arrangement or whatever. And so when we met, I just, I really related to him and, and he had already written that really super nice note to me, which is how I had, the you know balls to like ask him for an interview is the other thing I was just starting Popula, which is a very you know a small journalist owned um, publication and I thought well I would like to have a very splashy opening interview for this and like let me just aim for this guy you know when I wrote to his assistant she goes yeah like he wants to hang out and you guys can go have a drink at this bar if you want and I'm like hell yeah so it was a favor also um, to give me this interview for my own publication. It wasn't anything, it wasn't gonna be in a big magazine, you know? So it had all these sort of layers of complexity and 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 sort of friendship and, and I admired him and he knew this and he'd read my piece and he'd been really kind and been kind about my work and all this. So like when we met, it was like, here's two writers hanging out for a second. And it really was just that, like the thing, is that what I had written about him and what I knew about him was he was super careful. He was just a very cool 
he was very into the cool thing. You know, like you say, he was really into Henry S. Thompson. He really loved Iggy Pop. He had a picture of Iggy Pop on the wall in his house. He, you know, in his apartment, he like cared about that. He cared about looking good in a pair of jeans and he was very sexy and he was like, you know, that thing, like the sort of like mid to late seventies model, cool, handsome guy who liked that whole thing. And, and an obsessive tanner, apparently, which is so interesting. Apparently, yeah, he liked how he looked tan, which is like, okay. <laughs> George Hamilton. I never right. <laughs> I guess the right vintage, right? I guess. But Sorry, I, mean, I interrupted you. Sorry. No, not a bit. I mean, just, but I mean, absolutely the nicest man. Like, you know, this was his affect or whatever. But he was so well-read and so witty and so hilarious and so like his his he had real charm it was not a put on i mean he was really would be very careful to listen to whoever was talking to him he was genuinely interested in everything that was going on he was like i think that's if you're gonna say what's the one ingredient of this man that made the world love him is that he genuinely gave a shit about everything that was happening around him everywhere. And he never, it, it didn't have any other component than just a human sort of curiosity about the world and everyone in it. it there was just absolutely honest with that. And it didn't, it was, you know, disinterested and, and real, that sort of curiosity. Mm. Did you find him, I noticed when he's not listening or talking, there is a real sadness about him that, that mm -hmm. emerges. Did you find that or is am I projecting mm -hmm. on some level? No, no, definitely. He was a very, I wrote in my, the last thing I wrote about him, he, his, I, I, I came up with this phrase just without even thinking his was a very disappointed heart. His was a disappointed heart. Huh. almost from the first and like i thought that's exactly it you know like when you write something and it's exactly what you meant it's exactly <laughs> what i meant it's like yes yes this you know this is exactly how it was like he wanted things to be different and and more beautiful and better than they were and so his basic orientation to the world and i mean you can find many many instances where he sort of either glances at this or addresses it directly, that he was disappointed in the world, that it could have been better, that it should have been better. Mm. And it wasn't. And that sort of bitterness characterized like his whole personality. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought of Nora Ephron's wonderful line a little bit with how he tells his backstory, that if it happens to you, the, the things that harm you, that happen to you, you're the victim of it. When you retell it, you're the hero of it. You get the laugh or you get yeah. the passion of the listener. And I thought that's a huge element of his mm -hmm. storytelling is how, how brilliantly he curates the details and withholds details that you're curious about. You know, that he knows just what details to make you wonder about and then what details to give you to know in a way that's so seductive. Yeah, that's very well said. Uh, but I mean, he he's the candor that people 
often praise in this man, like um, also real, right? Definitely. Like when he talks about Haiti or whatever, like when he talks about his own life, he, he kind of draws back, like he wants his privacy and he doesn't want to share like the most intimate personal things in his life, like anybody. But like when he talks about Haiti, for example, like when a riot broke out, when they tried to feed some kids and, and he had so many regrets, you know, about like what his work was visiting on these places that he, you know, unforeseen consequences of going with a camera crew to go eat and celebrate and take pictures and all of this in a place that's desperately poor. And you start trying to pass out food and a literal riot breaks out and people are getting hurt and beat up because you tried to feed some kids. Like he describes this in a manner that is so raw and honest and not trying to gloss over how bad the results of making television about this, you know, might be it that, I mean, I think it's like, been lastingly helpful and interesting for like ideas of tourism, you know, in the United States, like the idea of like feeling like you have a right, you've got a passport, you can go anywhere, you're going to be welcome anywhere, you're spending money, you know, and like the limitations of that. He really shone a light on that in a way that I think is going to resonate like forever. Well, and also just this dynamic that I think like the first big literary traveler who also largely focused on food is Hemingway. And there is no place that Hemingway ever ate or wrote about eating that existed, um, which isn't the absolute worst place to go if you're visiting today. It's unbelievably overpriced. It's so you're surrounded by the people you do not want to be surrounded by while you're eating or anything in terms of cultural contribution. And Bourdain himself, like I remember when he's eating with Asia in Italy at like her favorite restaurant to go to says, let's not name the name of this restaurant unless you want to be surrounded with Americans. Let's preserve what's wonderful about it. That's got to be a weird way to look at your contribution to these restaurants is sure economically you're setting these places up in a way that very few people can but in terms of what drew you to them you are like spoiling the river from like the fish you want to fish that nobody else is fishing it's it's mm -hmm. it's fascinating to me like how he would deal with that dynamic he talked about it directly i mean i think it is a problem that kind of snowballed you know, the longer he spent doing it, like when he first started, you know, before no reservations, there was another one called Cook's Tour, I think was the first one. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he didn't know what he was doing. He just wandered to Japan and ate sushi and went home and like nobody thought another thing of it. You know, it wasn't a phenomenon, but like as he grew more successful, as he grew more famous and, and well-known, he could just make a place just by looking at it. And I think that that was really sad for him. And the way he talked about it to me was like, on the one hand, like, you know, I like that noodle lady and I like that people are coming to her place and she's successful. And on the other, he said, he didn't say like, um, they're ruining this place. He said, people should make their own adventures when they travel. They should serendipitously just go and find whatever place you know and, and that's because that's what travel is it's not like you know i think the way he put it was like that they're all sold out of 
tickets to the Louvre or whatever, and then sulk for the rest of the afternoon. Right. <laughs> yeah. But this and is. But not, I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just was going to say, like, I think most people who have traveled a lot, like, feel the same way about it. It's like you can't just. It's not only Bourdain's fault, obviously, it's also TripAdvisor and Yelp sure. and everything else. It's like, you know, you you can you really can't um, visit a place and expect to know it by looking at online reviews or, or Bourdain shows or whatever else. It's like, that's not travel. That's just like ticking stuff off on a, a list, you know, and you're not going to, you're not really going to get to know the place unless you get to know it your own way. I, I think this was not like a new observation, but it's become an increasingly important one. Well, and, and I think part and parcel with that, one of the contradictions that really interested me is he got a lot of very positive attention and feedback for saying most TV people, their biggest fear is not being on TV. That is not what my fear is. I don't give a shit. But in the documentary, when he's talking to his first two producers about saying, look, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't live this life. I want to give my new relationship a chance. I've just burned down my second marriage. Um, they say, okay, go ahead. Like, like quit. And it's, it's kind of clear. He really is afraid of not being on TV. He really is afraid of not being away 250 days a year. Like it's, it's this interesting thing with hyper successful people who talk about all of the sacrifices they made to, to get there. Very frequently, it's the people around them who had to make sacrifices for the obsession that these people had to get where they wanted to go. And I, I wonder if, if you see like there's some element of that with him that he was constantly contending with these contradictions. I, I feel like, I mean, having worked on a lot of collaborative projects, not television, um, I'm from LA and I was like always really allergic to that. But I mean, they do it to each other, you know, sure. like they, they are, it's like very competitive um, sort of world and and they all are like we have to do and the next one has to be better and i guess i think the the problem with most sort of hollywood people is that like you you never have a job like every job is going to end and so the second you start the job you're looking for another job that like they're always i mean i'm talking about my best friends people i've known all my life it's like it's a really hard way to live because you never stop looking for work and there's never a moment where you just say like okay this is my job and it's going to last for i mean I, job security is like really rare in our world but for them it's particularly rare because it's 12 weeks you know and they know it's going to be over and so like when you have a hit show you're working on a hit show and you're so um, you, you do not know that it's going to continue or what would happen after i mean i can kind of see how all of them would contribute to and participate in the sort of one-upmanship of that universe because that's really what it's like and I feel like uh, he it was too it was really hard and he was really lonely but he's far from the only person who went crazy working on a tv show right well and I, I guess what was it like for you to see like, you know, the end of this book, you talk about it a bit in your review about the inevitable last chapter with Argento. Um, you discuss that 
apart from his image of being such a strong advocate of the Me Too movement, according to Argento, he, he bankrolled silencing an accuser against her. And I, mm-hmm. I've not heard many people sort of delve into the mechanics of that. Like that seems, uh, if that would come out, I don't know how he would have defended that given his rhetoric and, and certainly in the documentary, they make really clear, he cut off a lot of people with a very low bar of standard in terms of like no nuance defending anybody who was anti me too or anybody who had been in a compromised position. He was really militant about it. While clandestinely, if, if what Argento says is true, um, silencing somebody who Argento lied about being sexually involved with while he was underage. Um, I, like, I wonder even his dynamic with her on the basis of that, being so vocal an advocate for, for the Me Too movement while having this in her closet. I have no opinion on this. I, I didn't even, you know, it wasn't in my original draft to discuss it. Huh. It's, it's you know, in conversations with editors later, you know, people thought, well, if we're going to talk about his relationship with her, this should be part of it because it was in published news reports with the New York Times and everything. And I didn't get to talk with him about it. I didn't get to talk with her about it. I just, I don't know. I, I can speak a little bit to what he was like because he was dating her when I met him and he was clearly like head over heels and I mean, there's no doubt he was just completely besotted with her. And this was in February. And by June, he was dead. So, and I I said, you know, I'm actually quoted in the Wooliver book just once or twice um, because she was in LA and we hung out and she asked if she could tape me. And I'm like, sure. And so we had a conversation, um, you know, about, about, that was one of the things we touched on, like, you know, how did he seem to you? Like he was, he had fallen in love with this woman and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people thought it was very intense, too intense and everything. And I'm like, well, you know, I didn't write about it in, in my piece very much a little bit, but I mean, he, it's true that he just wouldn't, wouldn't go five seconds without mentioning, you know, Ozzy thinks this and Ozzy thinks that, and was clearly somebody who like, you know, I mean, maybe he was 61 or however old he was, but he, a lot of people put it this way. He was like a teenager. He was so completely um, like, I don't, obsession isn't really quite the word, but besotted, you know, like um, steeped in this feeling, like addicted to this feeling about this lady. And, and so like you wanted it to be great and true and, and stuff, but it also seemed like, wow, this is like a lot for somebody your age who's been married before a couple of times who has a child, you know, like it was a strikingly um, impassioned and like a uh, way of being in love. It's funny you zero in on addiction because I mean what you described before with his relationship to TV, it sounds exactly like someone chasing the dragon. I can never get Absolutely. back to that first high, but I'm going to chase it and chase it and chase it and chase it. And everybody. A said, lot of people said this. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people described his relationship with Argento that way. 
that he had become, you know, obsessed and, and yeah, like, like like an addict. And yeah, I mean, the other aspect that I think affects the tenor of the relationship is almost, again, sort of like what you described where he's, if I buy a house or I get a book, I have to think about what's going to happen after I'm gone and who it goes to. Almost the moment of the inception of the relationship, he was telling people close to him, I'm doomed. This will end horribly. And mm -hmm. It reminds me of something. My, my dad went to a therapist once and she said, what's the most important thing to you? And he said, the, the brutal truth. And she said, do you want the truth or the brutality? Are you aware mm. of the distinction between the two? And I wondered about that with him. Kind of like Amy Winehouse, so many people blamed her first husband for destroying her. But wouldn't she have chosen somebody just like that again? Mm. Like, wasn't it incidental who he was, but it was more about the kind of type of person she was drawn to. And I wonder if that's true for Bourdain also with Argento to say, she's going to destroy me and it will be horrible. And you think, despite this, he loved her. Well, maybe not despite it, maybe because of it, he loved her on some level. I don't know. I, I mean... I, this is like, you know, way above my pay grade. All I can tell you is he was very into, I can tell you what I saw. He loved that she was an artist. He loved that she was a director. He was really into movies. Sure. Like, like Bourdain wasn't just kind of into movies. He, <laughs> he was really, 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 I mean, it was like shot for shot. He was a scholar, a, a film scholar, you know, and he had a, a really like, incredible memory you know and could describe films like like you know like a cinematographer would he very a visual sense of it and and a, and a wonderful narrative sense of it and he loved that she was in that world i think like he was dazzled by her as an artist and like kind of being with a fellow artist i think that was super meaningful to him and she was connected to like, you know, sort of Italian film history, like he just, I don't know, he was dazzled, he loved it. And I think that was a big part of it. Like, this is the kind of person I should be with. She's also really obsessed with her work. You know, she also has children that she's really loves and is into. She's also like, you know, perfectly capable of telling somebody to fuck off if she doesn't like them, you know, like all these things that like they had in common, like, they're both kind of like bad, bad boys and they're both like covered in tattoos and they don't give a shit, you know? And so that was suitable. Right. Well, I remember, I remember somebody did a profile of him, a, a woman did a profile of him and addressed him as a mama's boy. And he took issue with it with her directly and said, well, how could you say that about me? And she said, because it's true. Like, it's really obvious. And he mm -hmm. kind of conceded the point. And I, I find it just so intriguing how little he talks about his mother and yet how drawn he is to such powerful women, but yet mm -hmm. conflicted about it too, in mm -hmm. so many ways. It's, it's almost textbook identical to Hemingway's relationship to women with his own incredibly powerful mother. Mm, that's so interesting. I'd never heard anybody make that comparison before, but I think it's uh, compelling. Yeah, well, I, mean, just, I, I just mean the sense that every Hemingway marriage that he had, 
Um, he is so drawn to, drawn to powerful women, Gertrude Stein, um, uh, Martha Gellhorn, the third wife, you know, an amazing woman, amazing war correspondent and an incredible misogynist in her own right. But he's very conflicted by how much he's drawn to powerful women and very intimidated by them at the same time. And a lot of the people in the documentary with Argento mentioned that he was, like, as you mentioned, like a teenager, it was puppy love, but they said it was uncomfortable to be around because it wasn't an equal relationship. She had the power, which he seemed very drawn to. I don't know. I guess you'd have to be there, but he had an, a, a really, really, really formidable intellect and really formidable talent. And like, I mean, this. I don't know her work that well, you know, but like, I think if anybody was outclassed, it was not going to be him, you know, like mm. he, he, but I mean, he was insecure. Like he needn't have been, he's like a really, really, I mean, I do not say this lightly. There are not many living writers that I admire. He is one of very few. I mean, he, had the most incredible ability to summon intimacy out of writing and to make anybody in the world feel like he was talking to just them. Like, it's it's just beyond rare, right? He's 10 times more famous than her. Like if he, if you like fame, he was more famous. If you like talent, he was more talented. He was taller. <laughs> no, I don't know. I Maybe he felt, uh, that she would leave. She was younger. She's a very good-looking lady. I don't know. It, it's just it's ridiculous to speculate because one cannot have any idea. But sure. the things there's things that you can know. You can know that she was totally not popular with his friends. She, you know, reportedly behaved really badly on set and put him through very bad situation. And uh, I don't know. That's as much as I can actually, you know, that you can look at from the outside and see is true. Well, no, and that and that's all I'm raising is is what is provided in the documentary in the oral history is that he is cutting off people he'd been extremely close to and extremely loyal to after she's giving ultimatums to him. It's 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 him or me in many instances, and and people around him saying, "I've never seen him do this for anybody else." Yeah. And him defending it, saying, I know I shouldn't have done that, but you know how I feel about her. Um, in essence, confessing that he's feeling very compromised by the dynamic. Yeah, yeah, that definitely happened. Um, I guess last question before I let you go. Um, how did you feel when you heard about the suicide in June of 2018 and, and how the world reacted to it? Uh, like emptied like you know I had a I had a I had a personal connection with this guy you know we were friends I was I I had such a feeling for him I you know I was one of eight million people that he was friends with but like I was like you know, the first thing I thought was like, no, I, we were supposed to talk like, you know, as soon as whatever, like, I, I can't remember, I was supposed to call him or 
you know, and it was really, I was about to publish the piece that I wound up publishing was almost written. It, it wound up coming out in July. I had to throw the whole thing away and rewrite it because he was dead. And I just, you know, I don't know. I just felt like, how could you, how, how could you not wait for Kissinger to die? <laughs> <laughs> What a funny place for you to go with it. <laughs> this was like truly one of my first thoughts. I was like, how could you do, you, you, no, you know, it, he has, he was this public figure and everything, but like the, like anybody else who knew and, and was fond of him, it was like, um, he's some sort of an anchor to certain public, um, phenomena like how do you feel about travel how do you feel about luxury how do you feel about you know our generation you know the sort of uh, rock and roll kind of the punk the punk rock New York whole New York dolls Lou Reed thing you know like we were all getting older like he's like one of many avatars of this world to me and it's just sort of like I don't know I, I'm, I have not recovered put it that way well, I think certainly reading reading you and, and the kind of candor that he offered you um, was extraordinarily useful for me in trying to understand this extraordinarily complex person. And, and so I, I really appreciate your time today and, and your work. I was, I was really blown away by what you were able to access with him. Thank you. That means so much to me. It was a real pleasure talking about it. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebe and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.